Hello and welcome to Nature Snippets, a podcast about natural phenomena, about organisms that you may find in your backyard and beyond. I'm Declan McCabe, coming to you from St. Michael's College in Colchester, Vermont. When I moved to New England, I was somewhat surprised by the concept of leaf peepers. And these are tourists who come to Vermont and places like that, and they want to see the leaves. It honestly was something that never occurred to me to travel and see leaves until I lived here through the first fall. And I realized what an amazing, beautiful sight it is to see a valley just covered with beautiful, spectacular colors of the maples and other trees. What may be surprising to most is that the leaves continue to have a leaf season well into the winter and on into the spring and even early summer. And that's what I'd like to talk about a little bit today. I wrote an essay about this for Connecticut Woodlands magazine a while back, and it is called The Afterlife of Leaves. My sister and her husband recently visited with hopes of experiencing a New England fall. In preparation for the best leaf viewing, we exchanged weather forecasts and studied leaf maps. Nightly news showed peak leaf color performing its annual slow motion march from the mountains down into the valleys from northern New England southward. We hoped to time their visit to take in a picture-perfect fall day reflected in ponds and lakes. But once leaves fall, lakes and ponds and rivers have their own leaf season. Many of the leaves that blow across the landscape accumulate in water bodies. Dry leaves hit watery surfaces, stick and eventually sink. The accumulated leafy piles provide most of the food base for everything in freshwater ecosystems, including bacteria and fungi and insects and other invertebrates and fish. Ultimately, the nutrition from leaves works its way up through the food web to birds, otters, mink, bears, and people. Few readers would even consider casting a hooked leaf to catch a fish, and with very good reason. Few fish eat leaves. Several links in a complex food web are necessary before nutrients and calories from leaves ever feed a fish, which may in turn end up as a meal for a bald eagle or osprey, or on the menu in a fine New England restaurant. Before exploring the afterlife of leaves underwater, or even their importance as tourist eye candy, it's worth considering them from the tree's point of view. First and foremost, leaves produce food for trees. These little green power plants suck carbon atoms from the air and use the sun's energy to string them together into complex carbohydrates, sugars, starches, and even the tree's wood fibers. When we consume maple sugar or a caterpillar eats a leaf, digestion liberates the sun's energy, breaking down the plant products to provide nutrition. But providing leafy nutrition is not in a tree's best interest. Hungry insects, including moths, and their caterpillars can kill trees, and the trees are not going to go down without a fight. In addition to the more obvious defenses, like thorns and hairs that make leaves harder to get or consume, trees wage chemical warfare against herbivores bent on eating them. Plants produce a dizzying array of indigestible and even toxic chemicals to dissuade would-be leaf eaters. 
We take advantage of this pharmacological bounty as inspiration for everything from aspirin to caffeine to cancer-fighting compounds. Although the chlorophyll that makes leaves green breaks down to reveal spectacular fall colors, many of the unpalatable, indigestible and poisonous compounds are far more stable and remain in falling leaves. When leaves first fall into lakes and streams, not only are they inedible to fish, they are of little nutritional value and sometimes still toxic. A physical, chemical and biological process known to ecologists as conditioning converts inedible leathery leaves into delectable snacks that underpin freshwater food pyramids. Leaves in streams and ponds leach their chemical compounds into water in much the same way that tea leaves release caffeine, flavors and tannins that color our drinks. But the process of leaching toxins and tannins from leaves in water bodies takes place over weeks and in some cases months. Releasing toxins is just the first step. There's still the issue of indigestibility. Most of a leaf's structure is cellulose, like the paper upon which a story might be printed. Animals lack digestive enzymes to break down cellulose. Even termites, perhaps the most famous eaters of wood, don't have the enzymes to break down cellulose, and they depend on microorganisms to glean nutritional value from your floor joists. Two groups of freshwater organisms, fungi and bacteria, colonize sunken leaves and begin the digestive process before any animal takes a nibble. And still, even after the leaves are appropriately conditioned, most self-respecting fish will turn their noses up at the leafy salad bar. But invertebrates, insects, crayfish, aquatic sailbugs, and many others, treat all of that leafy goodness as a smorgasbord tossed to perfection with fungal and bacterial dressing. Invertebrates called shredders make their living by munching through these piled leaves, consuming fungi and bacteria along with the leaves. Only by eating these invertebrates can fish finally access the enormous nutritional value that our fall leaves provide to freshwater communities. Just as each leaf has visible characteristics unique to its species, Leaf chemistry, physical structure, and the timing of its leaf fall differs from one species to the next. A doctoral student at the University of Connecticut used time-lapse digital cameras to show the end-of-leaf season in maples occurring more than 12 days before oaks. Her research matches up with my own experience in my backyard. It seems the oaks are watching and spitefully waiting until I finished raking maple leaves before dropping their ample supply of leaves sometimes on top of early snow. Leaf structure and chemistry add additional variables to the mix. Linden leaves are soft and reach edible condition rapidly. Oak leaves are leathery and loaded with tannins that take far longer to leach out. The result of all of this variability is that a diverse forest provides a reliable food supply that lasts through the winter and spring, tapering off in the summer. In addition to supporting healthy terrestrial communities, that better persist and resist pest invasions, diverse forests also sustain freshwater communities. New Englanders know that variations in rainfall, temperature and storms shift the peak of leaf fall season to season and year to year. This begs the question, what might a warming climate do to leaf season? And further, how might it impact underwater communities? The obvious answer might be that warmer weather simply delays the season and indeed, anybody who has observed fall trees while driving south 
from Vermont to Connecticut, for example, would likely agree. But there's more to climate change than just warming. We certainly have warmer summers, but we also have increased rainfall in the autumn, and specifically more intense fall storms throughout the Northeast. In another study, a scientist modeled the impacts of climate change on 12 deciduous species in a range of locations. She predicted earlier leaf fall for some species due to summer heat stress and heavy rainfall, while later leaf fall for others due to a warmer climate. And all of this will vary by location. University of Vermont's Brian Beckage documented uphill shifts in the distributions of trees, with fir trees contracting their mountaintop ranges, while the seeds of broadleaf trees are germinating farther uphill than they did in the 1960s. According to Alan Betts of Atmospheric Research in Vermont, between the 1990 and the 2015 versions of the U.S. Department of Agriculture's plant hardiness zone maps, Connecticut shifted from zones 5 and 6 to the warmer zones 6 up north and 7 along the southern coast. And while trees can shift local distribution uphill, it remains to be seen if the trees can redistribute at a regional scale fast enough to adapt to global warming. These scientists mentioned have done some Herculean modeling to predict where a very complex set of parameters will drive our tree communities. And while their predictions are not necessarily tidy, perhaps to make the case for protecting diverse tree communities to spread the risk of dramatic change across multiple species so that some future versions of healthy forests can persist. Perhaps there's also a case to be made for assisted migration, planting trees some miles north of their current distributional limits. I can tell you that we have done this at St. Michael's College. We've planted tulip poplars and we have planted sycamores. Vermont is right at the northern extreme of the sycamore range and we are planting several of those locally sourced sycamores and they will survive quite well and have been growing rapidly. Of one thing I am confident, so long as leaves fall into streams and ponds, the invertebrates in these water bodies will feast on this discarded food source. Will New England streams start to look more like those of Pennsylvania or Virginia? That remains to be seen and depends on the actions we take to mitigate climate change. Aquatic invertebrates have evolved over eons to take advantage of an abundant winter food supply. For many freshwater insects, most growth occurs in winter even as their habitat is capped with ice. Liquid water flows throughout the winter and provides aquatic insects with a reliably constant temperature not guaranteed to their dry land brethren. Furthermore, this constantly flowing water serves as a conveyor belt and food delivery system. This past spring, I visited a vernal pool and I watched caddisflies crawling beneath the ice as they foraged on different patches of leaves. For insects in particular, the timing of winter feeding and growth is important. For most species, adults emerge to mate in the summer when the weather warms their muscles enough for flight. Few insects of any type can muster the warmth to fly in winter, and so winter larval feeding and adult summer flight is a boon for aquatic species. To get a glimpse into the winter communities in your nearest small stream, grab a handful of submerged leaves and drop them into a basin of water. You'll be amazed by the stoneflies, cranefly larvae, and other organisms that crawl out as you gradually remove the leaves. 
You can briefly establish a stream-side macroinvertebrate zoo, perhaps in a plastic ice cube tray to view your catch of the day. Take care to detain your guests just briefly and return them from whence they came so that they can continue to feast during the prolonged aquatic leaf season. And as for my family's leaf season adventure, the timing worked well. Before the visit was over, we were lucky enough to catch spectacular golden red vistas of maple, birch and beech reflected in the New England lakes and ponds that these leaves would later feed. That's all for today, folks. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please consider subscribing wherever you find your podcasts. This is a bi-weekly podcast, so you can expect a new episode every other Friday. Thank you once again for listening.